A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have a great show today. Today, I've got uh, Linda uh, Linda Gratton joining us. She is a, a professor, a psychologist, been in the the you know been helping companies, big companies, out most of her career, if not all of it. Um, considered probably one of the leading thinkers in the world on the future of work. And you know, given all the changes that we've been through the last couple of years, I think it's timely that we have you on the show. Welcome, Linda. I'm glad to have you. Thank you very much, Chris. Very happy to be with you. So, um, you know, your resume alone, I'd probably take the entire show just trying to, to, to explain that. Um, and as somebody who has become as, as renowned as you have related to, you know, the workplace cult and culture um, and where, where the workplace is going, uh, we always start our segments, as, as, as you know, and we've talked, and as our listeners know, is a little bit of kind of like your life story. You know, how does one become the expert in this particular <laughs> field? You know, uh, and, you know, your story in particular, I think, is very, very interesting. So I wonder if you go ahead and share it with our audience. Well, thank you, Chris. Um, I guess, you know, fundamentally, I'm a psychologist. In fact, I would even say I'm a, a humanistic psychologist. Um, what I mean by that is that, I basically think that people are good. They try the very best they can. And the role of an organization, therefore, is to help people become the best they very, you know, the best they can be. And I guess for me, I'm an occupational psychologist. My PhD is in occupational psychology. In fact, actually, Chris, it was in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But the reason I got so fascinated in work and us as working people, I think, looking back, is when I was about 16, 17 years old and needed some money, as we all do at that age, every every summer I went to a chocolate factory in the other side of the UK in a place called York. They made some of the great chocolates of that time. And I worked on an assembly line packing chocolates. And I did that for a couple of years, you know, just for six months, six week segments, because I was still at school and then I went to university. And I think actually standing by the women, because they were all women packing chocolates for six weeks as a 16 year old really helped me understand what work was about. It helped me think about friendships and, and also how on the face of it, this looked like a really terrible job. I mean, actually, I was really bad at it. But in fact, you know, the women gained something from it and they enjoyed it. And I think that sort of fascination with work and how we work and how we live our lives around work, I think really, Chris, that's been the most interesting aspect of of my life, really. I, I'm just sort of fascinated in in how we work and why we work as we do. And I'm also sort of fascinated in how that relates to families, to communities and neighborhoods. And I do think it probably started in that chocolate factory in York all those years back. What a great story. And so you, you mentioned that your, you said your PhD is in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that's, that's when we talk about it seems so much. Um, why, why that? Is, is that the foundational piece for you? Is this where it all started? Well, not really, no. I mean, I, what I, I was interested in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think the bit, the, the bit that sort of really got to me was the idea that we went through these hierarchy of needs. I think we all know, you know, the safety and then the belongings and, and self-esteem and then self-actualization. And I looked at that across a whole bunch of different types of people. And the question that I was asking is, is, is the context that you live in does that determine, how much does that determine how you are as a person? And how much opportunity does that give you to become, for example, self-actualized, which is, you know, in Maslow's view, the highest level of human endeavor. And I think what I was interested in then and really remain interested in is not so much the individual sort of inside in terms of their own personal motivation, but rather what is it about the work that we create, the families we create, the communities we create that actually impact and influence our own behavior and our own aspirations. So I looked at 
groups of people, some of whom were living in 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 very very in in real poverty, right up to others who were doing you know what you and I, Chris, would consider a great job. You know, well paid, lots of interesting work, and and I began to realise just how hard it was if you were living in poverty to actually break out of that and 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 to become the person you wanted to be. And I felt at that stage that good work could be a real escalator of pe- for people. And, and I continue to really focus on this question of what is good work? What is the sort of work, Chris, that you and I and our listeners can do that helps them feel fulfilled, that helps them build their skills? And that's been, you know, my focus of attention, first of all, doing my PhD. And then I moved to British Airways as chief psychologist. So I looked at how a big organization works. And then I went into one of the big consulting practices to really, I guess, you know, hone my skills working with large organizations. And then in my uh, mid thirties, I came to London Business School, which is where I still am. I've been there for 30 years now. And, And at the same time, I went and built my own advisory practice, HSM. I sit on what seems like numerous uh, advisory groups for companies. I sat on the uh, president, Abe's prime minister, Abe's council in Japan. So, you know, I've had a lot of fun along the way, but I think what continues to really push me is curiosity. You know, for example, Chris, right now, my number one curiosity is about friendship. It's just about, you know, where, where do we stand with friendship? And, and actually, I'm fortunate because I have a column at MIT Sloan. MIT Sloan puts out a, um, you know, a, a sort of magazine uh, every month or so. And every, I think every other month, I, I put a column in there. And it just really drives me forward. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm mulling over at the moment. You know, what, what is it? Where does friendship stand in all of this? Yeah. So I'm a very curious person. So where my does- husband says... My husband says it's terrible walking with me because he he says you stop all the time to look under every stone. That's not exactly right, but there is something in that. Maybe he's just two out of three, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so w- what is friendship? Where does it begin? How does it fit in all this? I, so, where are you at in your thinking on it? Well, I, I'll tell you what. This, I'll tell you where I am on this. A couple of sort of insights on that. The first is you perhaps know that. You know, if you ask people survey questions uh, about what it's like to work, the one question that most predicts whether somebody stays in their job or not is the question, I have a friend at work. Okay, so that's that's already sort of interesting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then the second thing and I'm, is that the Harvard work on uh, – which a team at Harvard, a wonderful team actually at Harvard, have been following people since the 1940s. And one of the questions they ask is, if we look at their lives as they unfold, is there anything about that that can predict uh, whether they're happy or not? And the number one predictor is, I have a friend. You know, a people. So I've been I've been sort of wondering about this. I've been thinking about it for a long time. You you know, Chris, that I've written. Written ten books, and in every almost every one of them, you'll see that I go back to this question of friendship. And for me, what's interesting about the current situation is that I do think hybrid is here to stay. I do think that while some people will spend all their time in in the office and some people will spend all their time working from home, I think the majority of us will do both. And then the question is, well, what does friendship become mm-hmm. in a hybrid world? So that's the that's the curiosity that I'm working on at the moment. And, and if any of your listeners have a view on that, just drop me a note on LinkedIn or just come, you know, just send me an email and uh, I'll, I'd be happy to hear their views as well. Yeah, we'll have to remember to um, to get all your information out uh, yeah. towards the end of the show when we do that. You know, um, I, as you talk, what comes to my mind is, is a word um, trust, right? And I, I think that, you know, you can have you can have friendships at different levels, right? You have that best friend, which, you know, you, you're confident you'll do, you know, you'll tell anything to, but friendships at work, um, are they, are they different than, than personal friendships? I know a lot of people that have said in the past, Oh, you know, I keep my, my personal life personal and my work life work and I don't need friends at work and all that kind of stuff, which I think is kind of a, a, a bunch of, you know, junk anyway. But, um, 
you know, as you think about this, I, I think that trust is really essential for people to function well with one another. And I don't know if you, I don't know what, if you build trust without building friendships. Well, actually, that's such an interesting question, Chris. And I was talking to a friend only yesterday about that. And, and this is what the research shows, Chris. The research shows that, so, so I also studied cooperation a lot. I've written a whole bunch of books about, um, you know, the, how people cooperate with each other. And you certainly need trust to cooperate with each other. So if you and I were to work together, I would have to feel that you were competent. So that the, my notion of trust would be about my feelings of your competence. However, I have friends who I don't think are particularly competent and I wouldn't trust them to do a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, for example, I wouldn't trust them to get here on time. Right. Or, I, you know, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust them to, um, you know, to, to show up in a restaurant at the right time. But, but I do fundamentally love them and like them. So I think the question of trust is a very interesting one. And I think friends are different than, you know, working colleagues. And when it comes to working colleagues, what, we've, what we know now about the research on cooperation is we really need to trust somebody's competence before we're prepared to work with them. And, and quite a lot of the, the beginnings of cooperation, you know, at the, as the process unfolds, is quite a bit about establishing whether that person is competent or not. And I've been writing quite a bit recently about does that change, you know, like you and I are on Microsoft Teams or Zoom, does that does that does that change? And let me just finish by saying one thing that's sort of fascinated me. Uh, in the last, so this is now March 2022. Uh, there is an Harvard Business Review article which I wrote about um, about managers and about how hard it is to be a manager these days. I wrote it with Diane Gerson, who had stepped down just recently from. Uh, becoming this was the CHRO chief human resource officer of IBM is now teaching at Harvard. And we wrote this wonderful article together, which we're both really proud of. Guess what? Uh, Diane and I have never met each other. In fact, we are going to meet in, each other because I've invited her to come and stay with me when she's in Europe in June, but we've never met. But what we knew is that we were all we were both really competent. So the question is, is Diana a friend? Well, I think she probably is. But I suspect that until we meet face to face, that friendship won't. I think it will change. But I, I, if you if you ask me back on your show in a, a year's time, I'll tell you. Yeah, what you know, happened we, with what happened with Diane and I. We'll have to follow up on that. Well, it's it's interesting because um, my wife has developed a number of um, a, a group of friends. There's there's five of them over the last I'll call it ten years, and um, it started out as just a book club, and um, they were all connected to an author that 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 they they particularly liked and. Um, actually had met because they were part of um, a pre-read group, you know, that would do like first reads and, you know, offer edits and all that. And they're no longer connected to the author, but they've stayed together for 10 years. And I remember yeah. the first time they got together, it was like five years or something afterwards. And it just really, really clicked. So I do think that friendships can, can be built, um, can be built virtually and online these days. It's, it's the old days it would have been pen pals, but now it's a lot easier when you can, whether it's text or Facebook or, you know, video of some sort or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's just reminded me as you were talking about your, your wife, Chris, that my mother, Barbara, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, when she was 12 years old, she met my dad in what was called the youth club. I don't know if you have those in the US, but yeah. you know, a place where young kids get together. That youth club, she met my dad there, so obviously she married him. But my that youth club stayed together for the whole of their life. I'm not joking. So even when she was 85 years old, so this was this had now been going on for 70 years, they still met as a youth club and went camping together. So I think looking back, probably my mother's, my parents' friendships with that group actually was an important push to help me think about individuals, not, not just simply as isolated islands, but very much in terms of the connectivity they have with each other. 
I completely, completely understand and agree. You know, another thing, and we've only got about a minute left, but I want to also explore another aspect of trust. So one of the things we've often said is we have this, what we call our working definition of trust. And that working definition is, you know, in the workplace, it's, you know, a decision to let go based on the belief that the intent and ability of another is good. And so, I mean, obviously you were talking about the ability side, you know, a few few minutes ago, but, um, you know, how do you feel about this piece on intent? Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there, Chris. And I think that's the same with friends as well, that, you know, you have to feel that their intentions are in line with your own values. Um, so I think I think values and intent is a really good way of thinking about, would I trust this person? Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are, we are up on our break. So I want to keep exploring this topic as, um, as soon as we can get back. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at the Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture, leadership and execution. See you there. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team and your organization through clarity, purpose and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Linda Groton. So Linda, before we went to the break, we started talking a little bit about intent. And you threw in a little word that we like to talk about a lot on the station. You said values. We talk a lot about core values and alignment of values. Um, you know, I'd love to know more about, about your attitude on, you know, intent and, and the necessity of alignment of values for friendships. Well, I think values are really important. Um, I think actually, you know, one of the, one of the marvels of, of living is to have diverse friends, you know, who come and push you towards thinking in different ways. And so I, I, for example, I've got friends who are very different from me in terms of my political, you know, views and background. I've got friends who might, who, who, you know, who's, who, who are more, for example, commercially focused than I am or more focused on money than I am. But I think that that diversity is really important. So I don't think for me anyway, Chris, there's you know a tight definition of what is it that I would be prepared to have as a friend in terms of their values. But of course, there are sets of values that I would find more difficult to, you know, to acknowledge or appreciate or to have a friend who had those values. So I think... <laughs> It's a little bit about also the diversity of experience. And, and I felt throughout my life, Chris, that one of the things I love more than anything is traveling. And I've been to so many places. Uh, and, and part of that is because I love seeing people living in different ways, having different sets of values about what's important to them. Take, take Japan, for example, which and it's a country I spend quite a bit of time in. You know, Japanese values about work, for example, or about the role of women, 
I don't particularly agree with them, but I find it very fascinating that people have, you know, different values than I have. So for me, I think part of the business of being curious is also to find out that actually people that you really like can have values that are different from yours. Now, I guess what you're thinking, Chris, is, but hang on, there are fundamental values where that, that are important. And yeah. I'm sure there are. I am I would be struggling to know what those were unless the person was, you know, I don't know, I'm using the word evil in a ridiculous way, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If Unless they're their, their behavior was out of step with, you know, normal norms as opposed to my own. Well, so, I mean, you know, you clearly have a value on, on diversity, right? I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take it at a very, very simple level. And this is a core value for you. It's, you know, just, and, it, and it's exhibited in everything that you do and how you meet and how you interact with people. And there are people who don't have that value. Um, you know, I, I personally believe that, um, well, I'm a believer that, there's great things that come out of diversity. And I think you can have a lot of diversity yet with similar value systems, you know, at, at the core. And I, I think that long-term relationships succeed or fail based on alignment of values. And I'm talking long, long-term. I mean, mm. I, I think about, you know, divorces that I've seen. We, we had a couple that, that friends of the family that, that announced a divorce out of the blue and it, everybody was shocked because they seemed like such a great couple. But when you really look kind of under the psychology under everything was going on. They had very, very diverse value systems. And, mm. um, and so it was, it was really a failure point. And so when we look mm. at it from a corporate standpoint, we want relationships to succeed. One of the things we do is really drive this concept of a corporation having real core values. And when I say real, mm. I mean, some, some companies will sit around, just pick, pick a bunch of words that sound good on a poster. That's not what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. I'm really under. Uh, understanding what's the root, what's the culture, what does it mean to fit within that culture? And the greater Mm -hmm. the alignment the person has to that, probably the greater the success of the relationships and the culture in the organization. And the last thing that, that I often say about it is, you know, there's no such thing as good or bad core values. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't think good and bad plays into this at all. I think we make judgments based on our filter system. So if, 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 if I like you, um, I might say, you know, Linda's got great core values. And if I don't, I might say she's got bad core values. Well, they're not good or bad, uh, but there is such thing as good or bad fit when it comes to mm-hmm. relationships. And I mm-hmm. think greater values alignment allow for better fit. And I'd love to mm-hmm. know your thinking. And, and have you done any work on that, you know, with the corporations, the consulting you've done, and even back in the British Airways days? Well, um, I mean, obviously, values are really important in organizations. The, the, the values that I'm, I write about the most, I guess, is about cooperation, which yeah. is to say, are you, in, you know, when you move into a situation, are you, do you want to compete or do you want to cooperate? Mm-hmm. And, and in my view, organizations that value cooperation and also that value innovation are much more likely to succeed. And, you know, I wrote a book, Hotspots, which I then named my consulting practice after, which really was about the power of cooperation as a fundamental value. And it's interesting that the notion of cooperation has played through, right the way through my my working career and indeed, I suppose, my personal life as well. The idea that that bringing people together, that asking people to talk about things that are important to them. So, so for example, Chris, one of the one of the things my uh, consulting practice HSM does is that it's we've built the capacity and, and the technology to build to, to bring up to a hundred thousand people together to talk about an issue that's important to them online, a facilitated conversation. And we've been doing that for about five years now. And I think the the chance for people across the world to talk to each other about something they really care about and then to build greater insight and cooperation. I think that's a wonderful value. Yeah, it's, you know, certainly we know companies, you, I'm sure you've, you've experienced some scene where, where that's not a value, right? That, that, that it's about inner competition and it's all about me and all that. And, and, you know, some of them have had some success, but I see others that don't. Um, I, I start wondering when I hear things like cooperation from you and, you know, I hear you know, some companies might say teamwork, they may use some words that are different, but basically the same kind of thing. 
um, if it falls into a category called permission to play. So one of the one of the thought leaders I really like is Patrick Lencioni. I don't know if you've mm-hmm. read any of Patrick's stuff. But, mm-hmm. You know, and he talks about different values. He talks about, you know, core values are those essential tenets we don't give up on for anything. But then he says there's a, there are some other types of values that can exist in companies, and one of them is permission to play. And permission to play is a value that just has to exist, right? And so I start <laughs> thinking about things like, integrity as defined by you don't steal, you don't hurt other people, those kind of things. That's That to me is permission to play. And does that actually operate at even a higher level than a core value? Because you absolutely have to have that value. And I wonder if cooperation mm-hmm. falls in that category. Mm, yeah. In fact, actually, when you said permission to play, Chris, I actually thought you meant actual play. Yeah. Um, because I, I'm also very playful. So I would, I always want permission to play. I remember, you know, I've been teaching for many years now and as much as possible, I like my teaching experiences to be playful. I think that we learn most when we're in a playful mode um, and we learn most when we're open to new experiences. You know, it, it, we, we do. And I also think that that, that translates to, it translates to just a better, um, how should I say, it? better attitude, right? Uh, at the end of the day, people, if they're, if they're playing, if they're happy, if they're having fun, I think they're in a much more creative state of mind. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've just spent uh, a week with some of my grandchildren <laughs> and my husband was amazed at my capacity to play with a two-year-old. Uh, for a long time, because I, I just think play is great. And and the more that people laugh and, you know, eat nice food together and go for walks together, then the more that they can, you know, the more they flourish. And, and, and actually, one of the questions we're asking about hybrid work is, as we think about working at home versus working in the office, could the office be more a place of play rather than just a place where you sit and put your headphones on because it's so noisy and get down to doing your emails? And I, I think there is there is a, you know, an increasing view that the office could be a place of cooperation and play, but that probably means we have to redesign offices and we probably have to think more about the neighborhoods and communities that they sit in. But that's another curiosity for me at the moment, Chris. I'm interviewing people from a, a number of the largest um, uh, architectural firms just to get a sense of how they think about space and how you think about working, playing in a space. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's really something to think about because how does play look in, in places that right now are pretty serious? You know, I, yeah. I, you know, I mean, you've, you've seen the psychology and, you know, there are people, you know, I've got clients that are, you know, calling people back to work and they don't want to come back to work. And it's like, well, come back or you're fired. I mean, I, I've seen some of that action. Like, what, what are you mm. doing? You know, why are you going back to this antiquated style? And yet there <laughs> are, there are, and I'm seeing it in the bigger companies in particular, and they, they have a belief and, and there's probably some truth to it that the culture is best formed when people are physically together. And there's so mm. much more opportunity if you can find a way to make it work. And maybe this concept of play is, is really what, what's important here. You know, how do yeah. we make it engaging and fun? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago uh, who is a senior person in one of the big investment banks in Manhattan. And she said to me, you know, Linda, I have just spent this morning one and a half hours commuting from Connecticut, or I think that's where she was, into Manhattan. And I'm going to spend another one and a half hours commuting back from my office. And all I've done all day is to sit on Zoom meetings. Why am I here? I said, that's a really good question. So I think if we want to entice people back to work, and I think it will be more of an enticement than, than a directive, then it has to be a place that people feel excited by being in. And I think, you know, the part of the reason I rushed to, to write my book, Redesigning Work, which is the latest, my, my latest book, was that I got the feeling that about now, so this is what, April 2022, um, companies would start to refreeze. You know, they'd start, we've been through the unfreeze uh, a period where they said, well, let's let, let, you know, let's just do everything and see how it works. And I think they're now beginning to say, okay, now let's work out exactly what we want to do. And I wanted to have, I wanted them to have that, my book in their hands as they were thinking about that, because I think it's such an important question to ask. And, 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 and some of the questions I ask in the book are exactly that, which is, 
you know, what role is an office? What, what, what would happen there that would make people excited about coming back there? What's the role of a home? I mean, frankly, I've loved working from home. I love being part. I live in Primrose Hill, which is mm-hmm. for uh, any of your listeners who know London. No, it's a really sweet place in London. I'm looking out at the moment on chestnut trees and and green and a bit of green space. So I think that working from home can also be marvellous. So I think we have an opportunity now to really change the context in which people work so that they can be more more fulfilled, you know, to be happier, to have stronger relationships and friendships. Yeah, and so I, I think I, I agree with you. I, I And I think it sounds great, I'll say in theory, right? Now, as we go into the practical side, though, there's resistance. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, gen- maybe it's more generational because, you know, I think about, you know, my son, for instance, who's out in the workplace and um, he's with a company that's very progressive minded and it, there's a lot of younger, a lot of younger people and uh, they've just flowed right in and it's just working and, and it's a little bit of hybrid. I mean, the office still exists. Um, their lease actually came up, I think, during the course of it. I think it's maybe a little smaller now, but he's remote most of the time, except for when he has to go into a meeting and, and they found a way to, to, to make it work. And yet mm-hmm. I'm finding, again, some of these companies that have, um, I don't know how to say this politely, but have leadership that, that, that are very, very stuck in old concepts are really trying very hard to go back to the old way. And I don't know how, I don't know how you break through some of that mentality. Well, you break through by reading my book, Redesigning Work. I mean, honestly, that was really why I, I wrote it, because I yeah. thought, it, what, a sh- what a shame if we just all go back. Having spent these two years, what a shame if we just all go back to how it, how it was. And, and I don't think we will. You know, it's a bit like uh, watching a long series of television shows. I think, Chris, we're probably in something like you know, episode four yeah. of, you know, of, of, of a long television series. So leaders can certainly say we want everybody back, but, but you'll, they'll find that people stop leaving. And so they'll change their mind. So I, I do think that there's still a lot, there's still a lot more in play as they say. Yeah. I wouldn't put that as the final word in other words. Oh yeah. No, no. I, I, th- I think what's going to happen is, is there are people that are going to learn this the hard way. Right. Yes. Uh, one, one of my clients um, is actually capitalizing on it. And what they're doing is they're watching LinkedIn and other other sources where people talk. And when they are hearing that the companies or at least they've done this a couple of times when they're hearing that companies are saying, you know, OK, it's back to work on this date. Everybody has to report back, you know, and you must be in the office. And, you know, they're putting notices out and say, hey, we have these <laughs> openings and they're completely <laughs> virtual. <laughs> And it's, yeah. it's amazing how many people they've gotten to, to, to basically jump ship and come over in a market where it's, it's so much harder. And, and I, have yeah. a hard, I also, you know, just from a pure business sense, I'm having a hard time with the mentality of, of having to be in the office too, because today, thanks, thanks to COVID, we have so, much, so many good, solid tools to, re, to work remotely. And yeah. what, why well, would look you, at you. Look at you and I, uh, yeah. Chris, with studio level equipment in our homes. Right. We couldn't have done this interview, you know, just three years ago. Yeah. I, you no, know, we couldn't. You would have been on the phone, and there would yeah. have been delay and and all that. Yeah. Um, but you know, all I've heard about now is I don't know about in the UK. Um, and we only have a minute for our next break. Time's really flying, but I don't know about in the UK, but here in the US. Hiring people is very, very difficult, has been for mm. a couple of years. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, people are fighting for labor. And now all of a sudden, unless the role is a factory role where somebody has to be on a production line packing chocolates, um, <laughs> unless it's a role where you physically have to be there, virtual has opened up the ability to even hire anybody anywhere in the world. Yeah. And why I, wouldn't I you agree. capitalize on that? So I agree. And so... You know, as organizations look out to see what other companies are doing, I think they're going to be pretty surprised by some of the experiments that their competitors are doing. Yeah, yeah. So we're up on our next break. So um, we're going to we'll continue. We've got one more one more chance to talk. And so everybody stay tuned and we will be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, Leadership and Execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Linda Groton. So, Linda, before we went to um, the break, we were, we were starting to really talk about, well, we were talking for, um, related to the hybrid workplace, you know, where mm-hmm. we need to go. And, you know, I was sharing some examples and stories of places where I'm seeing resistance, a desire to go back. And, you know, what comes to mind, obviously, is something, you know, again, people hear all the time, the concept of change and change management. And, you know, I think change is really, really hard, especially for, for some people difference, but I, I'd love to know your thinking, you know, the, the psychology that's behind it and what drives change, what, what, it, what will help some of these people that are really struggling and wanting it to go back to the old way, realize, you know what, we have a, we have a new world today. Well, I, I, I love th- that question, Chris, because I think that the question of change really sits at the heart of all of us. You know, when the pandemic started, which for me was the 24th of March, 2020, I kept a journal. In fact, I'm still writing in it right now, Chris. You you can't see me, but I'm writing it. The comments that you and I are making in that journal. And I've, I think I'm now on to, I think I'm on my 18th, 18th journal. Um And what I said at the very beginning as a psychologist was, you know, we change our habit. It it takes us about 12 weeks to change a habit. So I said, if this pandemic starts, you know, if it's more than 12 weeks, and by the way, at that moment in time, we actually didn't think it could be more than 12 weeks. But I said, if it does, then we will have changed our habits. So, for example, getting up in the morning, going into the office, um, you know, eating canteen food those habits will change and we'll bring in some new habits, you know? So for example, spending more time with our neighbors, being at home a bit more, cooking perhaps more better food at home uh, and we'll build new skills like digital skills and so on. So I had a feeling that if we, if this was sustained for more than a few months then our habits would change two and a half, two years later, our habits absolutely have changed. So one of the things that really helps us change is when our habits change and when our our context has changed, and that's happened. But the other thing that I've been particularly working with uh, executives about is about the story they're going to tell about the future. And and I would call that the narrative. You know, what's their narrative about what the future could be? And here's my take on this, Chris. There was an idea that it was a burning platform, that somehow people change because they're, they're in a situation that's so terrible that they, that they jump out of it. As a psychologist, honestly, I'd never agreed with that because we know as psychologists that actually if you're fearful, the last thing you do is to learn. You actually stop learning. And it may look as if you want to change, but in fact, you're not. People change because as they look to the future, they see that what's available to them is better than what they have now or or somehow more fulfilling or more purposeful than what they have now. And what I mean by that 
is that we walk towards change. We don't, we don't, it's not that we're running away from something, we're walking towards it. And so one of the questions that I ask of my MBA students, and I've been teaching at London Business School now for more than 30 years, and I have a program there that helps my MBA students think about their futures. And in it, we explore the notion of possible selves, the idea that each one of us could be a whole bunch of different things and uh, 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 in our journey forward. So the question here is, what could you become? What is it that you might become? And it seems to me that right now, each individual, because of their habits have changed so much, is asking that question. The question they're asking is, what what could I become? And and at the same time, organizational leaders are saying, well, what is it that we want? And building that narrative to help people understand what this organization is going to be, I think is absolutely crucial at the moment. And leaders do that. Great leaders do that Mm -hmm. by telling stories. I mean, you know that very well, Chris, because your whole idea is about stories. But great leaders talk about the, you know, stories that that help them to describe. So, for example, I'm, I'm looking at a leader at the moment who's saying, and he's a very famous leader, by the way. He's saying, I don't know the answers to this, but what I'd like to do is I'd like us to learn together and I'd like you to experiment. Well, if you're in that company, Chris, wouldn't that be an exciting place to be to think that nobody knows the answer? And by the way, nobody does know the answer, but let's let's learn together. Let's be prepared to take risks. And so I'm. What, one of the things I'm doing as a as, a, as, a, as an academic and as a person who studies is I'm studying the loads of experiments that are going on around the world. For example, you know, the Canadian investment company that said, you can work anywhere you want for three months a year, mm-hmm. or the big law firm that says, hey, take a sabbatical every five years, or the experiments that are happening in Europe that says, why don't we think about a four-day week rather than a five-day working week? So these are all experiments we don't know whether they're going to help people be more productive, which I think is the fundamental question that an executive will ask. But, but if we don't experiment, how will we ever learn? Yeah, it's so incredibly true. And, and I think you're right about fear because I I think that, that some of this um, trying to go back is fear driven more than logic. It's certainly more than thinking and, and more than desired thinking. Um, you know, I'm 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 watching this in action in a couple of places, as I mentioned, and w- with others moving forward. And I can't help but think, wow, great leadership really is about exploring. You know, the the comment is, I don't know the answer, yet ego gets in the way of that often. Oh yeah, you have to be a pretty humble leader. It's interesting the piece that Dan and Gerson and I wrote in, in Harvard Business Review in. in in March of this year, 2022, was about that. It basically said, you know, as a leader, or in fact, we spoke about managers, but as a manager, you've got to realize that it's about we, not about me. And it's about the networks rather than about these intact groups. And I think that that's absolutely right, that it takes a very uh, it takes a very special leader to, to say, I don't know, and let's try and find these answers together. But it's the easiest thing for a leader to say, I want you all back in the office. But to be honest, that's the easiest sentence in the world, isn't it? I want you back in the office. Yeah. And it might be that that's the best place for them to be. So, for example, Chris, one of the, 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 one of the groups I'm studying at the moment is architectural practices. I'm, I'm, look, I'm studying two of the largest ones in, in the world. And they really want people back in the studio because that's what they do. They do design. They want to see each other. They, and I've been walking around the studio and I can say, yeah, I can. Or else I've looked at a news. I've been working with one of the um, TV shows to look at how their newsroom works. So, you know, I think it's fine for organize, for companies to say, I want you all back. I, I don't really have a problem with that. But the question is, is that the right thing to say? And if you're just saying it, as you said earlier, Chris, because you're fearful or because you haven't any alternative, then that's pretty pathetic. Yeah. You know, and, you know, you said something earlier, too, that, that made me wonder. Um, when you talked about 
change is, is a walk. You know, it's a walk forward. We walk into change. And, and I really love that thinking because I think that most change happens kind of in an evolutionary manner. I mean, sometimes we don't even realize it's happening. It's just we look back and all of a sudden, oh, this is a very different situation than it was 10 years ago. Uh, but there are times when change gets imposed very, very quickly. COVID's yeah, a great like, example. Yeah, right? COVID's the best example yeah. of that, so, isn't it? Yeah, and, and they don't happen that often at a worldwide level, maybe once every 100 years, you know, at a worldwide level, but, you know, or, or 50 years, you know, you can look at major wars or different things that occur. Um, in our lifetime, it might happen a couple of times. But is there a, um, you know, what I was thinking of, is there a whiplash effect? So, so again, if, if a change comes at you really, really hard, when we get through to the other side, so in this case, we're getting to the other side of COVID, um, is some of this trying to go back kind of more of a whiplash effect as opposed to looking at it as, you know what, this change could have just throttled us forward? Yeah, I think that's an, a, a good observation, Chris. And I tend to look I tend to look at organizations as systems. That's why in the book, Redesigning Work, I talk about design systems, you know, how you, you think about them as complex systems. And, and, and complex systems are always seeking to ba- rebalance themselves. They're always trying to find the mean, as it were, to try yeah. and get to a balance. And for example, you know, I've seen organizations to say, that say, we've got to be highly decentralized, and then they go, oh, hang on, we've become really decentralized and we've lost all our connectivity. So we've got to be more centralized. Or they've said, we want to get rid of all bureaucracy. And then they say, well, hang on, nobody knows what they're supposed to do. Oh, let's bring some back. And I don't think that's, I'm not saying this because, you know, I think these companies are doing the wrong thing. It's simply that it's like, you know, the, the water system in your home, the heating system, it's constantly getting feedback. It's constantly trying to rebalance itself. And I think organizations are like that at the moment. They've they pushed everybody uh, in, not everybody, but the people who could during COVID worked from home because of, you know, concerns about health. And, and now they're trying to get that balance right. And I think that's, it's a really fascinating period of time because I agree with you. You know, I've been writing about companies now for more than 30 years and there's never been a point where I've seen so much change. I have seen change. I was very much part of the, 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 the collapse of Lehman and the whole restructuring of the economy around that. But that didn't affect every company and it didn't affect every company in every part of the world. But this has, I mean, this morning, for example, Chris, I was talking to um, a whole group of senior executives in, in Sydney, in Australia, and they've had the same experiences as I've had and as you have had. So I think the rebalancing is is taking place now. And what it would be very sad is if we just went back to where we were and, and haven't used this as an opportunity to think more creatively about what work could be and how we might work. Yeah, it, it, it definitely would. So if you were stepping into a, a new company that's maybe stuck in its ways, what would be, let's say, the top three bits of advice? You know, what are the things that that, that for any of our listeners, um, you know, if they're running a business or they're just working within one, uh, what's the best advice you could give them in these times? Well, I, the first piece of advice I would give, I mean, it's surprising actually in the, in, in the book that I think people expected me to start the book by saying, listen to your employees and, and ask them what they want and then give them what, we, what they want. I didn't do that because, Chris, I'm old enough to know that if you build an organization around employees' needs, then it, it's not, it's not going to work. You've got to have some sort of give and take. So I actually start the book by saying, what are the drivers of productivity in your organization that you now need to focus on. Because unless we design new ways of working that help people be more productive, then this whole thing is going to be pulled out, you know, as soon as we go into our next recession and looks as if that's around the corner. So that would be my first piece of advice. My second piece of advice would actually be to listen to employees, because I think that listening devices, however you do that through surveys, through focus groups, by talking to people, by putting them on, you know, on, on you know, bringing them together in somewhere or another, that gives you a real sense of what's important and what's not important, because there may be things actually 
are really important to people. That's not a very big ask for you. And then the third thing I would say, so that's about looking inside. The third thing I would say is look outside. And specifically, I would, if I was a CEO of a company now, I'd be keeping a very close eye on what my competitors are doing. And by competitors, I don't mean, you know, you're a telecom, so you're looking at all other telecoms. I'm talking about people who are in, who are competing in the same talent pools that you're competing in. So you might be a big telecoms, but actually a lot of your people have digital skills. And so you're competing with a lot of startups and a lot of medium-sized organizations that are probably a lot more nimble than you are in terms of the way they're thinking about work and the future of work. So I would be, I would look at your, at what your competitors are doing in terms of their you know, redesign of work with as much interest as you're looking at their products and services. Those would be my three pieces of advice. Uh, that's uh, excellent, excellent, excellent. So um, we've got a, you know, just a couple minutes left here. Uh, the the book title again, and it's coming out here in the U.S. in a well as of the as of this recording in a couple of weeks. By the time this airs, it'll probably be on the market. Um, but yeah. The book is titled "Redesigning Work," Redesigning published work. by published by MIT Press in the U.S. It's been out two weeks already in the U.K. and I have to say I'm really pleased with it. I've written a lot of books, Chris, and I tend to think of them as, as as children, really, in the sense that I give them as much help as I can. But in the end, they have to they have to get up and walk on their sturdy little feet. And some of my books have hardly got off the ground. I think I've got one called The Democratic Enterprise that only my mother has read. In fact, I'm sure she even didn't read it. And I've but this is one that I can see is capturing the imagination. So I'm very pleased about it. Well, it's it's, it's a great title. And it's it, it's some great thinking. Um, I'm assuming that it's going to be available through Amazon and all the easy ways to get it. Yes, and if you like my voice, then I actually this is the first time ever, and it will be the last time I actually narrated the book. So the audio book is narrated by me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I might have to get that too with all my, all my drive time. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. All and, your drive time. And you did mention earlier, you know, that, 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 you know, for, for the listeners, anybody that wants to reach out, offer an idea to email you. And so let's, let's give them your, your email address. Please spell it. Yeah. Well, probably the easiest thing is to go into LinkedIn actually, or, or, or Twitter. Those, those are the two platforms. But if you uh, drop a, drop a note to uh, me at Linda at HSM, Dot com that will do it but I think probably LinkedIn we monitor our LinkedIn really carefully so that's that's a good one as well or else Linda uh, L Grattan at london.edu that's my London business school email so, uh, for for reference for our listeners Linda's with a y l y n d a yes it is l y n d a and Grattan mm-hmm. g r a t t o n if you're looking on yeah. LinkedIn and I've got a website which also allows you to download lots of stuff that will help you to redesign work. Yeah, I'll, I'll be visiting that myself in just a few minutes. So I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your being with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a fun conversation. Well, folks, this is, uh, this is the end of this conversation. We do have some more great ones coming up in future weeks. So stay tuned and thank you for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.